This is Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Red Letter Studies number three. We are in Matthew chapter five. And last week we left off. We left off with the paragraph that begins at verse 17. It goes through verse 20 where Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. And I know we talked about this last week, but it's just a quick review before we go in further because we have a, several ye have heard that it was said to get through here in this part of chapter 5. But he says, think not that I'm come to destroy the law or the prophets. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to us here now, but it was a very big deal to the Jews that he was teaching at that time. You'll remember, he was teaching Jews under the law of Moses. Jesus had not yet died. And so all of the teachings of Jesus here within the four Gospels fall within that dispensational period known as the law. The law of Moses was still very much in effect. Jesus had not yet died. That sacrifice for sins had not yet been made. So. The way to be right with God in the days when Jesus walked the earth and taught and healed and so on was to be a Jew under the law of Moses. That's how it was. So he's reassuring them in this verse, in verse 17 and verse 18, he's reassuring them, look, I didn't come to dismantle the law of Moses, to pull it apart and set its pieces afloat. I didn't come here to do that. I came here to fulfill it. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Now, one might be tempted to take what he says here. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You might be tempted to take that and say, all right, well, that if he just didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled it, then the law is still in effect. It's just been fulfilled and we need to be fulfilling the law too. No, he says in verse 18, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. Okay, so he said that he came to fulfill the law, and then he said nothing from the law is going to pass until it all be fulfilled. Well, what did Jesus do when he died on the cross? And then rose again, and then returned to the Father. He fulfilled it. He fulfilled it. So the law was never bad. The law wasn't something that needed to be annihilated. The law was something that was good. It came from God. We're actually uh, reaching over a little bit into Romans for this part. The law was good. It came from God. It was something that had a very specific purpose, and that was to bring us to Christ. Now, Christ having come and being available, what need do we have for the law of Moses now? Now, of course, that doesn't just take everything and just undo it and say, oh, well, it's all grace. It's all grace and we can do whatever we want to and go to the bank and rob it and shoot people in the process because grace, right? And obviously, with a little bit of common sense, not even needing discernment of the Holy Spirit, with a little bit of common sense, we can understand that's not what he's saying. But he did, in fact, fulfill the law. Now, moving on, he says, well, he talks about... Uh, 
breaking the least of the commandments and teaching other men to do so. We talked about that some length last week. But he gets to this verse right here, verse 20. And this whole paragraph culminates right here in verse 20. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now that really brings it home right there. I was thinking about this before, before we came to the Bible study tonight. That really brings it home because what were the scribes and the Pharisees like? We know at a high level, well, they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. They were hypocrites. Jesus said they were hypocrites. He called them all kinds of very unkind and unfriendly names. Did you know that? Jesus was very blunt when it came to people like that. I know we think gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and yes, he was. But he didn't pull punches when it came to frauds. He didn't pull punches when it came to frauds. And he called them everything from whited sepulchers, excuse me, the place where you put dead men's bones. Right? He called them that. He called them hypocrites. He called them vipers. He was very frank with them. He was very straight with them. So he tells the Jews that he's teaching here, and we can take this for ourselves, regardless of the dispensation. He says, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Well, what do we know about the scribes and Pharisees beyond the obvious, that they were hypocrites? You know, well, how were they hypocrites? What, what was it that made them vipers and whited walls and sepulchers and all these unkind terms that Jesus used? Because... They had the outward appearance nailed down. I mean, they looked the part of the pious, religious Jew. They took things from the law that were actually in the law, and then they exaggerated them and blew them out of proportion so that they might show unto all of the people just how amazingly, excuse me, just how amazingly devout they were. And the, the first example that always comes to mind with that was the commandment in the law of Moses that the Jews, all of the Jews, all of the Hebrews, all the people of Israel were to sew within every garment that they had a thin little ribbon of blue at the, uh, I think at the borders or at the, at the seams or something like that. It wasn't even necessarily something that had to be visible. It could be on the inside, I think. But it was actually part of the law of Moses that they should have this ribbon of blue in all of their garments. And it was to serve as a remembrance. It had to do with their being the people of God and so on. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, the Pharisees took that and said, okay, well, too much of a good thing is an awesome thing. So they had these gigantic blue borders all around all of their garments to show the people, see how big my blue border is. I am more righteous than thou. That was kind of the attitude that comes along with this sort of thing. They had the outward appearance nailed down beautifully, or maybe not beautifully, maybe more like tacky, gaudy, like those folks that wear electric blue suits to church with the coat that comes down to here, and 56 gold buttons down the front, and matching walking stick and pimp hat. Really? I know it's covering you, so like a lot of skin and body shape isn't showing, but is that really modest? I kind of I kind of doubt it. But whatever. They had the look down pat. They had the religious look down pat, but the inside was full of corruption. That was that was the Pharisees in a nutshell. 
They looked the part. They were not the part on the inside. They were not the real thing. They did not worship God in spirit and in truth. They did not have godly humility abiding in them. They didn't have meekness. They didn't have any of the fruit of the spirit, so to speak, whether the Holy Spirit had been given or not. They didn't have it. And that's why Jesus dealt as straightly with them with them as he did. That's why he talked to them. This ties into what Jesus says in another place. And I'm almost certain, well, this is red letter teaching, so we're going to get to it over the course of these Bible studies when he tells them, wash the inside of the cup and then the outside will come clean. Well, they had not done that. That was a metaphor. That was a metaphor for let God clean up your heart and then the rest of your life is going to follow. And that's a, that is a straight line, fundamental truth of the Christian life. Let God clean up your heart and then the rest of your life is going to follow. And every single aspect of your life is going to follow if you allow it, unless you resist it. But that's that ties into that. He said, wash the inside of the cup and then the outside will come clean. Well, let's talk about that coffee cup of that guy that I used to work with. You know which one I'm talking about. Some of you, some of you who are here. Well, and for those of you who weren't, there's a gentleman I worked with back in the 1990s who had a coffee cup that he never, ever cleaned. He never washed the inside of that thing. He had this he had this notion like it was a cast iron skillet and you should season your cup with your old nasty coffee, okay? And so he'd just drink it and then just leave it. So the inside of his cup was almost as black as my phone case here and it was just gross. But the outside looked just fine. That's what these Pharisees were. Spiritually speaking, the outside looked great. Long robes, broad blue garments, pious actions and all of that. But their heart was corrupt. Their heart was corrupt. And that's why he called them the things that he called them. That's why Jesus called them whited sepulchers, which outside have been painted white or whitewashed and made beautiful. But on the inside, they were still filled with corruption and dead men's bones. Thus, he tells us here in verse 20, brothers and sisters, our righteousness has to exceed theirs. We've got to be better. There's a saying I heard some time back that's always stuck with me because it was short and it was just just hit you right right between the right between the eyes. I was gonna say something about the brain stem, but that wouldn't make any sense. But it just hits you right here. It's a saying that says, Don't be sorry, be better. Don't be sorry, be better. So how should we be as Christians? Well, I'm sorry a lot. I'm guilty a lot. I repent a lot. Don't be sorry. Be better. And if I can just rabbit trail for just a moment and reach over and snatch out another verse of Scripture from another place where he talks about, Paul the Apostle talks about godly sorrow, working repentance, right? If you've read some of that, if you read that before, you know where I'm talking about or where I'm coming from. Godly sorrow works repentance. So being sorry is fine and sorrow is fine, okay? But those things are intended to be vehicles, not houses. Sorrow is to be a vehicle to bring us to repentance, which is a change of things, right? Jesus is all about change. He's all about us changing, changing us from the kingdom of darkness to light, from, from, uh, uh, from, from good, once we've been saved, from changing us from good to better, and then from better to even better. That, that's, that's the Christian life, from the born-again experience all the way to the grave of the rapture. Is God working in us a good work, bringing us more and more under the, under the new standard and into the image of Jesus Christ in us, okay? So it's sorrow is good. We're not intended to live in it. It's supposed to bring us to repentance, and then we repent, and then why be sorrowful? Sorrowful Christianity is 
really missing the mark, isn't it? That's why I don't believe in guilt-driven religion. I really don't. That's why I, I, there's few denominations I just couldn't be. I just couldn't. And I'm not throwing stones, okay? It's, we all make our own reputations. But Christianity is about victory. When we had that new sign made for the front of the church out there, and we were working on designs, and, and, uh, and that all actually came quite easy, I think. But when it came to what kind of a tagline do we want to put on it? What slogan do we want on the sign so it's not just New Testament Christian Church, big gold shield? You know, there's, there's something along with it. I didn't want to clutter it up with the church schedule necessarily. I wanted something on there. And so I was racking my brains. What do we want to have on there? You know, do we want to put, uh, you know, full gospel? What does that even mean anymore? People don't even know what that expression means and so all right well why put that up there if it doesn't really communicate anything productive uh, although we are a full gospel church and all that means is that we believe teach and preach the entire word of God the full gospel from Genesis to Revelation and uh, okay well what else do we want to put on there um, preaching a living Christ to a lost and dying world okay well that's a good one it's popular among many of our churches but just didn't seem to have the, the bite that I was looking for, something that was going to really convey a message that would engage your mind and your heart and get it thinking on what it meant. And so I came up with a couple other ones, but they were almost just like bullet lists, and they were really kind of lame. And so I was talking with a man, uh, with a uh, very respected uh, minister that I've, uh, I've been under before in the past, and he told me about one that another preacher of ours had come up with ages ago out over in Korea. And he told me what it was, and I thought, now that nails everything. Because you see, any church of the living God has a two-pronged mission. And I know we talked about that. You've got, we've got to be evangelical. We have to reach out to the lost. Or we'll ne we are not fulfilling the commission that Jesus gave us. And then we've got to also work on edifying, perfecting, and building up those who have been born again. Amen? looking for some consent instead of frozen fish sticks. Because if you leave off either, either one of those missions, then the church falters and misses and swings wide of the mark. If you're all evangelism all the time and there's no perfecting of the saints, then you get like you get with the seeker-friendly movement. And their own founder says this, and that's why I say it and drop names. He said it. said our churches are a mile wide and two inches deep. So you can't have that. So evangelism's a must, but so is sanctification. And then if it's all sanctification and you never reach out to anyone, then your church turns into a museum church in, a, in an insular, uh, paranoid, little comfortable social clique that uh, uh, eyes everyone on the outside with mistrust. And so we can't be like that either. We need to be both. We have to reach out to those who are not in the faith and, and seek to bring them in. And we need to work on ourselves and let the Holy Ghost work on us as well. Thus, Bible studies, prayer meetings, fellowships, things that, that build up, that build us up as a family, build us up as the body of Christ, build us up as individual believers. So all of this ties into here, verse 20. We've got to be better. We don't live in sorrow. We don't live in guilt, okay? If something's come our way and has made us feel that way and we've examined our hearts and determined this is not the flesh and this is not the devil, but this is in fact something I'm doing wrong, well, then what do we do if we feel sorry about it? We don't live in the sorrow. Let it bring you to a place of repentance and then move on. Simple as that. Simple as that. 
So, bottom line for this uh, paragraph, verses 17 through 20, we've got to be better. We've got to be better. We can't just have the outward nailed down. Now, the outward is still important, see, because you'll have people that'll take that and then run to another extreme, because this also ties it. Man, we're just not getting very far here, are we? But this, we, we got to break this down thoroughly. As that, as that man, I don't know if it was Oswald Chambers or who it was that said it, that, you know, meditate on the scriptures, for these grapes will yield no wine until they are pressed. Meditate on these things. So we can, we have the time. We can break this down and chew on it. This ties into also what Jesus was saying about when he was rebuking the Pharisees in another place. And I know we'll come back to it and then it'll refer back to this. Or you can, it relates to this, where Jesus was rebuking the Pharisees and he said, you know, you guys pay tithe of everything, even of the herbs that you get. You know, didn't he tell them you tithe, you pay tithes of mint and what was the other thing that he said? Was it cumin? I think it was that stuff that stinks when you actually cook anything with it. Smells like body odor. Anyway, um, he said, you pay tithe on everything. You even you, you pay tithe on, on the herbs and the spices that you get, but you leave off the weightier matters of the law and of righteousness and faith and judgment and all of that. And then he says, these things ought ye to have done and not left the other undone. So the temptation of many and some whole congregations, the temptation of many is to say, oh, well, then we're just going to focus on all the weightier stuff. And we're going to leave off all the lighter stuff. Well, Jesus didn't say to do that. He specifically said that we ought to have attended to the, the that they ought to have attended to the weightier matters, and also not left the other stuff undone. So, what's important in the life of the believers? Is it the inside of the cup or the outside of the cup? Yes, it's both, but it's in the right order. It's in the right order. If we focus all our attention on looking the part. I don't have enough up here to work with. I don't. We focus all of our effort on looking like a believer and wearing the right clothes, but our hearts are still filled with jealousy, envy, contempt, anger, bitterness, strife, you know, maliciousness, all these things that, that uh, associate with, over there with the works of the flesh. Has our righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees and the scribes? Yes or no? No. In fact, if at best we've matched it, <laughs> we we are we have met the expectations of religious hypocrites. Great. That's not exactly the mark I want to hit. So then, what do we do? We let God clean the inside. Well, I did that when I got saved. Yes, 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 yes. But you know that the heart is like a garden. And that a garden takes constant maintenance, doesn't it? it? Who here has ever tried to raise anything in a garden? Ever. You know that that's not something that just sustains itself. You gotta pull weeds. You gotta pull, put down herbicide, insecticide. You gotta do all these things to to keep the environment good for the things that are growing that you want to grow there. You know, you want some fruit. You want some tomatoes, or maybe you want a yard full of corn stalks. I don't know. It's whatever it is that you're wanting, but you have to maintain that thing, and it takes work. Well, the heart is a lot like that also, because yes, Jesus comes in and he cleans up the heart. But does that mean that the devil quits? Man, I wish. That'd be nice. Oh man, I lost another one to the kingdom of God. I guess I should just go home. 
Yes, please, devil, go home. Leave us alone. We want to serve God. But he doesn't do that, okay? He's the enemy. He has his job to do. And so he's going to keep at it. He uses minions and his low-budget doubles or whatever. So what does, that, what does that mean? The heart takes maintenance. You maintain the heart by living in the Word and by living in prayer and staying close to God and staying sweet in your soul. And there's other things too, but I mean, you, could, you can arguably sum it up there. Live in the Word, live in the Spirit, stay close to God, live in prayer. And you can't go wrong when you do that. So we've got to be better. Verse 21, let's move on now that we're two-thirds of the way through our study. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill. And whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Now let me stop there, and I'll back up. Okay, what's he saying? You have heard it said by them of old time, thou shalt not kill. Direct reference to one of the Ten Commandments, obviously. And I think it's, it originally renders as, thou shalt do no murder. And, and that's important. That's an important distinction to make. Or else thou shalt kill. Um, okay, well, then you're going to die because you can't kill any animals to eat them. You can't kill any plants because you're still killing. So you can't even be a vegan. That's not even a way out. What are you going to do? Scrape the minerals off of rocks? No. So it's not an absolute thou shalt not kill. He's talking about cold-blooded murder. He's talking about committing an act of murder. Thou shalt not do that. And then he says, but I say unto you, I say unto you, in other words, I've got something, I've got something that cuts to the heart of the matter. Doesn't just, doesn't just command concerning the symptoms, okay? Because where does murder come from? It comes from the heart. We first kill somebody in our heart before we kill somebody in the flesh. And hopefully nobody here has done that. But if you have, the blood of Jesus will cleanse you of that also. That it will. Don't think that it won't. Jesus says, but I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Not just somebody who takes another man's life, but someone who is even angry at their brother without a cause. Does that mean that if it's okay for me, to, does that mean it's okay for me to be angry with them with a cause? Well, that'll get wrapped up in another place too. It's not really good even to be angry with someone if you have a cause. You got to crucify that fast. Because the anger of man almost always leads to something that is not the will of God. So he says, if you're angry with your brother without cause, you'll be in danger of the judgment. And then he gives a couple of examples to put it in perspective. Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka. What in the world does that mean? Well, I had to look that up because it's not in English. Raka is simply a Jewish word of contempt. It is derived from the root word to spit. Whatever the word is in Hebrew, it means to spit. Raka, it's something that you say to someone when you're calling them uh, something really despicable and you really have contempt for them and you are letting them know. You notice how that comes out from the heart, right? That's why we're told elsewhere in Scripture, let no filthy communication proceed from out of your mouth. 
Because Jesus says in another place, it's not what enters into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of him. And then James says over in his letter that uh, it's out of the heart all these things come from, and the tongue being a the tongue being a little member, but how great a fire it kindles. You see how all these things connect and 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 give us a uh, give us a comprehensive picture of what our character ought to be like and what our behavior ought to be like. We should not be given to verbal outbursts of rage. We shouldn't be. And when we do yield to that sort of thing, the first thing it does is it alerts us. I've got some weeds in my garden. And that means, Father in heaven, I got some work to do. Help me, Lord Jesus. And then we have to set about going through the garden of our heart and mind and pulling out these, re these weeds by the roots and crucifying them so that we don't live in that kind of error, okay? He says, Whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Whosoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hell fire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. Why? Because your gift isn't acceptable to God. When you're in a state, when, when, when you're in a, uh, a kind of a fallen state in your heart or when you're in a state of conflict with another member of the body of Christ, you're not, your gift, is your gift acceptable to God? Is our gift acceptable to God? And, and this, I don't know if this clicks in a lot of people's minds and it never really clicked in mine until I was guilty of the same thing. All right, story time, quick one since we're coming close to the end. Story time, Bible college, circa... 1996 or 7. I think that's right about the same, the right, the right neighborhood. I had gotten into a conflict with a brother in the dorm. Because, you know, that never happened ever, did it? Reverend Ryder. <laughs> or sister, you were, you were in the dorms too. In the female dorms, she wasn't in with the men's dorms. <laughs> Appropriateness. Prudence, wisdom, not giving place to the flesh, whatever. No, um, but we, I got into this conflict with a brother in the dorms. It's stupid, a stupid conflict. It wasn't anything at all. And no one had necessarily sinned. There was, there was no sin involved, but you had a couple of clods that had butted heads. And it was, I think it was a Thursday night, and we had church that night. And so, you know, we were all getting ready for church anyway, and we're all in a rush, and we're all pressed for time because we're coming home from our day jobs. And so off to church we go. The offering basket comes around and man, my heart absolutely smote me. Either my heart did or the spirit smote my heart. One of the two or maybe both. I was convicted. So I had an offering ready to put in. But I remembered this verse. If you have ought against your brother. Leave your offering at the steps. Go and be reconciled to your brother first and then come. And give your let's actually read what he says there. Let's let's read what he says. Verse 23. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, because we didn't resolve the conflict before we left the dorm. Leave there thy gift before the altar and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. Then your gift to the altar or what have you, your offering to God, then it's something that can be received because there's no conflict, there's no unresolved anger and conflict and, and stupidness 
you know, developing into a root of bitterness, because that's what happens in the long term. You don't resolve these things as sooner than later. Then when later comes, it's become a root of bitterness and then it becomes a grudge. And it's a real spiritually poisonous thing to have in there. So he tells them, leave it at the altar. Go make things right with your brother or at least try, because sometimes some people you can't reconcile with because they don't want to. You want to, and you reach out the olive branch, but they sort of slam the door shut, and they don't, they don't want anything to do with you. So he says, leave it. Make things right, as right as you can. Then come back and give your gift. And then he says 20, in verse 25, and it relates to this, agree with thine adversary quickly while thou art in the way with him, lest at any time the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer, and thou be cast into prison. Verily I say unto thee, thou shalt by no means come out thence till thou hast paid the uttermost farthing. Some people think that that's a reference to hell or to, to judgment, hell, lake of fire, and so on. It really isn't because there's no coming out of the lake of fire. So that, that, really, does, that really doesn't relate here. He's talking about people being reconciled to one another. Verse 27, let's move on. Let's get a little bit more in before I absolutely have to shut this down. Verse 27, ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whoso looketh on a woman. So once again, we've got the letter of the law that was prescribed over under the law of Moses. And then Jesus cutting through the symptoms of a matter and getting to the heart and to the root causes of it. Everything about Jesus and his teachings was about getting to the root cause. The law of Moses built up this civil framework of laws and commandments and ordinances which were designed to, to, to govern every aspect of their life, but also to keep order and to keep people from doing things that they should not do. And that's what laws are for, but they didn't address the root cause. Sin, if you will, okay, and this is big picture stuff, sin is the fruit that comes off of the tree that grows up out of the corrupted ground of the unconverted human heart. The condition is evil. Are you following that? Let me try this again, all right? Picture the ground. That ground is called evil. And out of that ground grows the results of evil, which is sin. Sin is the result it is the work and the action, whether it's a, a sin of thought, whether it's a sin of speech, a sin of action. It, it, is, it is the result of, it is the fruit of a sinful condition. When the heart is evil, excuse me, an evil condition. When the heart is evil, then it's going to produce, it's not going to produce good fruit. It's going to produce wicked fruit. It's going to produce sin. Jesus was all about getting down into the dirt, into the soil of the unconverted human heart and solving the problem right there in at the root, at the very cause of it. So here he says, all right, you've heard it said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. So now Jesus takes it from just an offense of full-blown action, and he brings it all the way back to the intent of the heart. So, okay, let's make this a practical example. I'm out walking around somewhere with my wife in the merry, merry month of May. Why not? Let's throw that in there, too. And uh, some rollerblade girl goes zipping past on her rollerblades and shorty shorts and half of herself hanging out of her clothes. And uh, 
and that just goes right past my eye and I go like this. First of all, that demonstrates a crippling lack of self-control and spirituality. All of that is now very much, very evidently lacking, okay? Second of all, what's going on in my heart if I'm doing that? Jesus says, and this is, this is where it's okay to be the preacher because I didn't write this. So I can hide behind it. I can teach it and I can hide behind it. Say, making anybody mad, don't get mad at me. Because Jesus said it. Jesus said, Whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. In other words, if a man's lusting after a woman that isn't his, and what I mean by his, and I use that term loosely, no married person is another person's property. Granted. Okay? I'm not saying that that's the case, that anybody owns anybody. Okay? But he's making it clear. If a man is ogling a woman, and it goes both ways, if a woman is ogling a man, and they're not married to one another, okay? Then Jesus is making it clear. It's adultery. It's adultery. It's adultery. He's getting to the root cause. Okay? Well, what does that mean? Well, if it's adultery, I should just go ahead and go through with the act. May as well go for broke, right? No, 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 no. Because there is a difference. It's, it's the same root. And if followed through with, it would have the same result. But, you know, do you want to accidentally, do you want to set just your living room on fire or do you really want to burn down the whole house? You know? You can replace the carpets a whole lot harder to rebuild the house that's been torched. That's a metaphor also. Just because that may occur in the heart doesn't mean that we should just go for broke and then go for it. It means that we learn self-control. And that's one of the fruit of the Spirit that he talks about over there in Galatians. Galatians 5. That's one of the fruit of the Spirit. He says is temperance. The Holy Ghost in you will bring forth the fruit of the Spirit. You know, where once the ground was evil and brought forth sin, all right, well, now the heart being purged and cleansed of sin, and then if have the Holy Ghost living in you, you need that, you need that power, okay? Well, then the Holy Spirit in you naturally brings forth the fruit of the Holy Ghost, the fruit of the Spirit, one of which he said is temperance. Temperance is self-control. It may mean a couple of other things along with it, but it speaks of self-control. And so let's go back to the rollerblade girl, okay? I'm out there with my wife and walking around in the month of May. And then zoom goes rollerblade girl and might catch my attention because something flashed past my field of vision. But what do I do? Oh, she's half undressed. I avert my eyes. Done. Simple. That's what a believer ought to do. Hey, I lived in Florida for eight years. And not no rural Florida, not like up in the interior with the alligators and, and the cockroaches. No, I lived in coastal Florida. What do you think people dress like in coastal Florida? In the summer and spring and fall. That's something you get the victory over really fast. Or you just lose and die spiritually. They, they, don't, they don't believe in covering themselves. So, well, how did you deal with it? I averted my eyes. I averted my eyes. Why? Because I want to be what Jesus told me to be. I don't want to be an adulterer in my mind, ogling women I'm not married to. 
I don't have only one. We, we're not polygamists. We're not polygamists. We, we, we don't want to do that. We don't do that. Yeah, I'll just let that sit. It's not a whole lot to say about that. We don't have multiple spouses at one time. Okay, whatever. And if thy right eye, this is verse 29, and if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for, ve- for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And verse, verse 30 basically repeats, the very next verse repeats basically the same thing. If your right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it for thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. So what's he saying here? He's not telling you to pull your eye out of your head because you saw something that you shouldn't see. Okay? I have a feeling that if that were a literal thing, we'd have a whole blind nation of people walking around, half blind and entirely blind. He's not talking about literally plucking out your eye. He's making a point based on the principle of the matter. Okay? That it is better to sever something from your life that you value if that thing has become corrupted or is corrupting or is holding you back from God or is taking you away from God. And some things that aren't even necessarily bad, if we allow them to, they can still have that effect. They can still have that effect. You know, and anything that we allow into our lives, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, things that are perfectly good, things that are perfectly lawful. If we're allowing those things to take us and keep us away from God and the things of God, well, then you have to be honest with yourself. You've got to be willing to analyze that thing. Is this something that I really need to keep? Is this something that I need to allow to remain in my life? And there have been things, and just by way of a personal example, and i actually having trouble thinking of one in particular. I'm sure if I give it a moment, then I can, but it's just slipping my mind at the moment. There are things that I've just cut loose. Not because they were wrong or bad, but because they were having a very negative effect on my life. They are having a very negative effect on my walk with God and my relationship with God. So what's he saying? If your right eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it away. If your right hand offends you, cut it off and cast it away, for it's profitable. It's profitable. He says it's profitable to thee. It's not just good. He says it's profitable. It's profitable to thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It's better to lose a little something of your life and remain saved. Or even a big something in your life, if it means that you get to remain saved, than it is to try to hold on to absolutely everything. And then you and all that everything are lost in judgment without God. We'll pick up with this. We get the will of the Lord next week. We'll finish this subject. We'll move on into the next where he talks about Thou shalt not forswear thyself. And then he brings that home to the root cause of the heart. And then he talks about an eye for an eye and a root, uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, a root for a root, a tooth for a tooth. And then he'll bring that, he brings that home to the root intent of the heart and loving your neighbor and hating thine enemy. And then he brings that home to the root of the heart. That's all coming up in the next Bible study unless we get mired down in the details. But then that's what this is all about is getting mired down in the details. We want to know. We want to know. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving.